Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. For every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. To kick us off, this episode is rated a five, and I want to start with, in my opinion, one of the most important and precedented true crime stories in college history. I've titled it Easy Unlawful Entry, and it takes place at the private institution of Lehigh University, which is nestled on a hill in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So without further ado, let's get started. When she was a senior in high school, Jean Cleary had a lot to look forward to. She was planning to attend Tulane University in New Orleans after she graduated, and she had actually already been accepted and was even set to play on the tennis team. Jean also was a legacy of sorts because both of her older brothers attended and graduated from Tulane, and her parents were actually involved in the university parent council as well. However, all of these plans came to an abrupt halt in the fall of 1984, just a year before Jean was set to head off to Tulane. As part of the parent council, Jean's parents, Howard and Connie Cleary, visited the university in October of that year, so in October of 1984, and during their visit, they were in a private meeting with the president of the university himself when he informed the Clearys of something that completely changed their minds about Jean attending Tulane. The president told them about the murder of Karen Minkin, a Tulane student who was strangled in her apartment a few weeks earlier. Though this didn't happen on the Tulane campus, the student's apartment was really close, only about a block away. The Arizona Republic reports that the family was so disturbed by the news of the murder that they just panicked. They had never considered another university except Tulane, but now there was no way Howard and Connie were letting Jean, their little girl, their only girl, go to Tulane. It just wasn't safe. In an interview with the Republic, Connie said, quote, We were so shocked, Howard and I. When we came home, we told Jean we just couldn't allow her to go to Tulane. We were too frightened. It was so far away. End quote. Now, though, they needed to start looking for a different school for Jean to attend college, and they needed to do it quickly. It was already October, and she not only needed to find a new university, but she also had to apply and get accepted all in less than a year because she was set to graduate from high school in the spring of 85. If she wanted to start college the following fall, she had to find a new university as soon as possible. So they got busy looking. Ultimately, they thought something close to home would probably be the safest choice for Jean, and they ended up finding Lehigh University. It's a private institution in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, only about 50-50 miles from her hometown of Bryn Mawr, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. As of the 2010 census, Bethlehem had about 75,000 people, so it's not a tiny town, but it's definitely a smaller community than New Orleans. 
Jean fell in love with the campus when she visited Lehigh because of the stone architecture and wooded campus, which all spanned about 1,600 acres, and it all set on a hill that overlooked the town of Bethlehem. And Jean's parents were delighted when Jean chose Lehigh because not only was it only about an hour from home, but it seemed like a safe place as well. Connie described the campus as serene, and she said, quote, it was so green looking and the people were very warm. Jean and I fell in love with it, end quote. Plus, Connie said she and her genie, as she lovingly called her, were so close and this meant she would have her best friend close to home. In April 1986, 19-year-old Jean was well into her first year as a college student. And it sounds like she was living a normal college life, too. It was right after spring break, and she had been at a fraternity party on campus, having a good time, and then eventually made her way back to her dorm to go to bed, which was about 3 a.m. that morning. But she left the dorm room door unlocked because her roommate had misplaced her key. According to the L.A. Times, her roommate had a date that night and apparently couldn't find her key. So before she left, she just asked if Jean would leave it unlocked for her if Jean came home before her. I just want to pause right here and say that although I don't love the idea of the door being unlocked, this was a totally normal college thing to do. I personally lived in a dorm room the same dorm room for three years before I moved off campus into my own apartment my senior year. And we would leave our doors not only unlocked half the time, but also open just for anybody to come in if they wanted to or, or you know, gaped open a little bit just because I lived in an all-female residence hall and we all loved the idea of just living like one big community family. Um, that's how we made friends and that's how we bonded and that's how we became close. So it really was just part of the college experience. But that's where I'm going to leave this part of the story for now, of Jean sleeping in her unlocked dorm room, which in theory should be totally safe. After all, there are at least two other locked doors that should keep any unwanted visitors from coming in. The key word here is should. So now I want to shift the story to another person, another key player in this tragic situation, the person who was ultimately responsible for taking Jean's life. That person is Joseph Henry, a 20-year-old sophomore from Newark, New Jersey, who lived off campus. According to an online article in People magazine, Joseph had been out drinking all day after losing a student election earlier in the day to head or be the president of the Black Student Union. And this guy was angry. Apparently, Joseph had been a student at the school before he flunked out, and he had just returned and re-enrolled in that 1986 spring semester. But he also had been fired from a restaurant for being, quote, violent, end quote, though it doesn't specify what he did or what the violent act was. And he also had thrown a rock through a female student's window, though it doesn't say why. But clearly, Joseph had some massive anger issues. Alcohol played the biggest part in all of this, according to Joseph and his defense team. When he drank, he apparently had a tendency to become very angry, which is just how alcohol affected him, according to them, and he would become outraged and violent. So, after he had been drinking all day, sulking because of his lost election, Joseph later attended a college party that same night. 
It's not the same party that Jean was at. It was just on the same night that Jean's party was. While there, he got so angry that he broke down a door and then intoxicated Joseph took a walk around campus to calm himself down. On April 5th, 1986, between the hours of 4 and 6.30 a.m., he eventually wandered into Stoughton Hall, the dorm that Jean lived in, with intentions of robbing whomever's room he could find that was unlocked. He ultimately entered the dorm through a series of three doors. The doors were normally locked and only residents of the dorm who had keys were allowed access. But in this case, the doors had been propped open, either for a pizza box or with pizza boxes. According to the Crimeversation podcast, they may have just been propped open with a nearby rock. But regardless, this was a common occurrence and there had actually been more than 180 complaints or reports in Stoughton Hall alone about students leaving the doors propped open saying that they didn't feel safe or whatever with them open. But regardless of how they were propped open, that is how Joseph was able to get in. Stoughton Hall was a co-ed dorm, and Jean lived on the third floor, which was an all-female floor, while the second floor was reserved for males. The first floor was just like a common area or a hangout area for all of the students. Upon entering through those open doors, Joseph first went up the stairs to the second floor, but the door he tried to enter was locked. So he made his way up the stairs to the third floor and tried the first door he came to. This one was unlocked and it was Jean's room. As Joseph was ransacking Jean's room, she woke up and at first probably just thought it was her roommate coming back home, but she soon realized it was a stranger. It was then that Joseph tried to silence her by taunting her with a broken beer bottle, waving it back and forth in front of her face, and ultimately slashing her with it. He then raped, sodomized, and strangled her to death with a wire slinky toy. Although Joseph denies this and says that it wasn't a slinking toy, a couple of reports that I found said that it was because there was a slinky toy nearby. Regardless, I'll never think of a slinky toy the same. Joseph also followed through with his robbery, taking Jean's camera and radio, among other items. And as he was making his way to exit the building, Joseph realized he forgot his wallet in Jean's room. So this guy turned back around and went back to her room to look for it. But not before stashing his loot in the basement of the building while he went back. I guess for safekeeping, not sure. But upon re-entering her room, Joseph wanted to ensure she was dead, so he proceeded to bite her all over with his teeth. He bit her so hard that the bite marks went completely through her face, which ultimately helped in the prosecution's case to convict him, according to the LA Times. Then, when he returned to his off-campus apartment, he put the stolen items in a black trash bag and placed it outside next to the dumpsters for, quote, safekeeping, end quote, Again, whatever that is supposed to mean. Meanwhile, at Stoughton Hall back on campus, another resident was passing by Jean's room to answer a dorm phone around 11 a.m. when they discovered Jean's lifeless body. Howard and Connie Cleary had been vacationing in Bermuda, so they did not hear the tragic news of their daughter right away. Upon returning from their trip, the Clearys took a cab from the airport to their home in Bryn Mawr to find police cars waiting for them in their driveway. At first, they thought maybe their house had just been burglarized, or maybe the alarm had just been tripped somehow, but regardless, Connie insisted on saying the Lord's Prayer before they spoke to the officers. 
That is when they learned that their daughter had been brutally murdered in her dorm room. Later that day, around 11.30 a.m. on Saturday, April 5th, 1986, Joseph and one of his friends were actually listening to the radio he had stolen, Gene's radio, when Joseph began talking about his crime. Most articles claim Joseph was boasting about the crime, but the Crimeversation podcast dug up some pretty exclusive details about how all this unfolded between him and his friends, and I would not be doing this story justice if I didn't share it. So, between their research and my own, the events surrounding Jean's death probably happened something like this. The story goes back to a party at Clifton's house on the night of Friday, April 4th, 1986. Clifton was one of Joseph's friends, and he and Joseph had been arguing about how Joseph acted when he drank alcohol. And Clifton had been basically telling him that, hey, you need to quit acting so crazy when you drink. That night, Clifton's party was where Joseph had gotten so intoxicated and so violent that he knocked down a door. When this happened, Clifton was pissed. Clifton told his roommate, Kenneth, to get Joseph out of there, and he made Joseph leave his house. I think Kenneth was supposed to take Joseph home, but somehow Joseph ended up walking around campus to supposedly blow off some steam and calm down. That's when he wandered into Jean's room and committed the treacherous attack. But it wasn't until Sunday, April 6th, that the police would find out who killed Jean Cleary. So, back to the morning of Saturday, April 6th, just after Jean's body had been discovered around 11.30 a.m., Joseph and Kenneth were listening to Jean's radio in Kenneth's room at he and Clifton's house. It was during this time that Joseph told Kenneth that he had actually stolen the radio that they were listening to. Prior to that, though, he had told Kenneth that he killed someone on campus during the wee hours of the morning. But when Kenneth didn't react the way Joseph wanted him to and was just like, um, what the fuck, man? What? Joseph just kind of played it off and acted like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I would never do that. Huh? Later, <laughs> Kenneth though thought that this was super sketchy, of course, um, and he ended up telling Clifton what Joseph had told him. Then, later that same day, at a midday president-hosted multicultural reception on campus, which all the friends attended, rumors began spreading that a body had been found on campus, but they were saying it was some sort of alcohol or drug-related overdose. While at this reception, another student, Stephen, told Clifton that Joseph had confessed to what he had done to him as well. He said Joseph also showed him his hands, which appeared to have cuts and wounds from the attack. I think that might have been linked to either the slinky toy or the broken beer bottle, but regardless, he had cuts on his hands that proved what had happened. Joseph also told Stephen that he had already told two other people about what he had done, but they didn't believe him. Joseph said, though, that once the body was found, they would believe him then. At some point during his boasting or confessing or bragging or whatever you want to call this that he was doing, they asked him how he knew he had for sure killed her, and he said it's because he made sure. Sadly, I think he was probably talking about him biting her all over her body. Still, though, the plot continues. Even later that night, on Saturday, April 6th, the guys were all at a cocktail party, and Clifton began to talk to the friend group in the bathroom, minus Joseph, about what Joseph had been saying he had done. 
And in the middle of their conversation, Joseph walked in. Instead of asking, though, for forgiveness or if they believed him, he just asked them if they were still cool or if they were still friends, despite him murdering someone early that morning. The guys, I'm assuming probably completely appalled and just ready to get him out of there, were just kind of like, hey, dude, yeah, sure, maybe later. Let's just talk about this later. Let's let's get back to this later. The next day, Joseph's three friends finally did the right thing and went to the police and turned him in. When the police went to his apartment to arrest him that Sunday, they actually caught Joseph in the middle of emptying that trash bag of his stolen items on the floor of his room. During the trial, Joseph pleaded not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, suggesting he was impaired and not in his right mind due to the amount of alcohol he had consumed and his intoxicated state. But despite his plea, it took the jury only two hours and 15 minutes on April 25th, 1987, to deliberate and find Joseph M. Henry guilty of the brutal attack, rape, and murder of Jean Ann Cleary. He was sentenced to death in the electric chair. The Northampton County judge who presided over the trial, Michael V. Franciosa, went on record saying it was, quote, one of the most brutal ever to come before this court, to degrade your victim by submitting her to sexual offense and then to strangle her to death to keep her from testifying against you, shows that you should never, ever be allowed to return to free society, end quote. Howard Cleary, who was 60 at the time of the verdict in 1987, in an article with People magazine, said, quote, I hope I live long enough because I'm going to be at his execution. I ask God to help me with it, but I have enormous rage, end quote. However, Joseph's sentence was later reduced to life in prison without parole when he agreed to drop his appeals. Regardless, Joseph will literally spend the rest of his life behind bars. Personally, I have a life motto that good things can result from bad, terrible, tragic situations, even though they seem so senseless and just pure evil at the time. And this story is a true example of that motto because there is one good thing, one major thing that came from all of this, and that's the Cleary Act. The Cleary Act is part of Title IX federal legislation that requires all higher education institutions that receive federal funding to openly and publicly report yearly campus crime statistics. If they fail to do so, they lose funding. Also, side note, if you don't know what Title IX is, look it up. Hurry. Actually, pause this podcast right now and go look it up. Go look up the extent of what Title IX covers. It's super important, particularly among higher education but that is for another podcast to dive into, I suppose. So for now, let's get back to this one. After her murder, Jean's parents worked for years to not only bring justice to their daughter, but also to prevent anything like this from happening again to any other innocent victims, if at all possible. You see, Jean's parents believed their daughter's murder could have been prevented if they'd only have known about the crime statistics at Lehigh. Throughout the trial and the aftermath, they learned that although Lehigh is a private institution and appears completely safe and cozy and free of crime, it's actually located next to some of the roughest neighborhoods in Bethlehem, with some of the crime making its way onto the Lehigh campus. 
in the three years preceding her death, they found out that 38 violent crimes had been committed on campus, including rapes, assaults, and robberies. However, none of this information had been available or communicated to families sending their kids to Lehigh University. The Clearies made it clear that if they had known about this crime, they would not have sent Jean to Lehigh. Howard Cleary, in an interview with People magazine, said in the same time period, Penn State had significantly less crime incidents. He said, quote, Penn State, with six times as many students, had just 24 violent crimes. So you can see which school has the better security system, end quote. Because they felt like security had failed to adequately do its job on campus, having only 12 security guards to 5,400 students, the Clearys filed a $25 million negligence lawsuit against the university. The suit was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, but let's be clear, it was not about the money or any type of monetary damages for the Clearys. It was about so much more. They actually used the money from the settlement as well as their own funds to establish a nonprofit dedicated to their cause of better security on college campuses. They called it Security Campus Incorporated. But what about security back at Lehigh? Well, part of the settlement was an agreement for Lehigh to increase security. The university also added card access to its dorms and devices to help alert campus personnel of any propped open doors. Through their nonprofit, the Clearys lobbied for national legislation to mandate colleges and universities to publicly provide crime statistics. According to the Arizona Republic, Pennsylvania was the first to require crime reporting on campuses in 1988, and then many states soon followed suit. Just two years later, in 1990, Congress passed the Gene Cleary Act, which mandated every state institution that receives federal funding to report the crimes on their campuses. Also, because of the Cleary Act, college police departments are serious now. They no longer are compared to mall cops or just security guards because that's not what they are. They have an actual police force with an actual police station that enforce the same laws and regulations as any other precinct. In fact, the university where I am employed built a new police station a few years ago that is equipped with full holding cells and interrogation rooms, which to me is just one more example of the Cleary Act serving its purpose. Unfortunately, Howard Cleary passed away in 2008 and Connie Cleary is now in her 80s. Ultimately, the Clearys realized that what happened to Jean could have happened anywhere but their pain and grief became a cause and they wanted to make sure their daughter's life was not in vain. In my opinion, they did just that. In a 2016 interview, Connie Cleary summed up the goodness and the power of the Cleary Act best, saying, quote, It has honored Jeannie in such a wonderful way by knowing that she is saving lives all over the country. How much more can I ask for? End quote. That brings us to the end of the first episode of Campus Crime Chronicles, but stay tuned because another episode is coming at you. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle. Chronicle.